It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is part seven. A good number. I love the number seven. So this has to be a good one just in and of itself. Uh, but uh, the title is uh, such that uh, it sounds a little familiar, uh, the fellowship of the king. It's not the fellowship of the ring, it's the fellowship of the king. What's interesting is I almost called this the fellowship of the rings, and, but I didn't. Uh, and it would have made just as much sense. You see, this, this territory between the towns in ancient Anglo-Saxon Britain is called Middle-earth. And you have so many uh, different aspects of this that sound vaguely familiar. Uh, if you grew up with J.R.R. Tolkien, my favorite book uh, when I was young was The Hobbit. And so there's a lot of uh, interesting overlap here when you study this time period. It does feel sort of like a J.R.R. Tolkien uh, novel. But uh, <clears throat> this idea of fellowship with the king is so utterly profound. It's one of the standout attributes of this time period in studying the life of Alfred that when you see it, it, it brushes up against your soul and it causes a bit of awe, but you don't quite know what to do with it. And so what I've been doing is it, attempting to chew on it in such a way where it uh, can be presented here in a, in a way that moves us and stirs us to some degree of action because the whole point isn't to learn about Alfred and the fellowship that he had with his thanes, but to recognize that there's a pattern and that is the fellowship that we are to have with our king. And it's a key part of the new covenant uh, that we have is the term isn't very attractive to us, the fellowship of his suffering. That isn't very attractive to us, to be honest, and so most of us are like, you know what, I think I could do without that. I'd like some of these other attributes of the kingdom of heaven and of life with Christ, but the fellowship of his suffering, I'm not exactly sure if I'm that interested in that. And yet, it is so embedded in the beauty of what it means to follow Jesus and what it meant to follow even a king in history past. Our value system and our uh, philosophical grid that we come from in modern North America is just different than the ancient uh, model. And the way that uh, the men work together is just very different. If you've ever studied David and Jonathan, it gets a little awkward because uh, you're like, ooh, I think they're a little too close. And yet at the same time, there is a closeness that was appropriate and right and always has been right in and amongst men. It's just not normal today. So we joke about it as men today, uh, you know, that you get awkward fairly quickly. Uh, and, you know, guys don't go off to the, you know, you go out to eat some guys and some girls and the girls will all go to the restroom together and whatever they do in there, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> and, but guys, you know, we go by ourselves, okay? If I'm going to go to the restroom, I don't need any companionship in the process. And so it is interesting, just this distinguishing between how men and women naturally work, and we see how even culturally that's, that's built up. And so some of these things fly in the face of that, and it, it tests us in a certain way. It's like, that is so different than the way we've always been. But I'm going to just acknowledge from the very get-go, it's absolutely extraordinary. And I want this with my king. 
So I want this fellowship uh, with my king. So the fellowship of the king. So if you remember the last episode we had, we were at the Battle of Ashdown. It was an incredible finish where uh, Ethelred is going to finish his prayers and we are going to see a, what feels like a supernatural victory. And it's the first victory over the Vikings that has ever been experienced on this island. And so it's a turning point. And yet, not all is ease after this. And the fact that Alfred is going to even become king is going to show you that there's not all ease. It's the same year. So January of that year, we have the Battle of Ashdown. And by uh, Easter of that year, which is only a few months in, Ethelred, his brother, the king, is going to die. And so you have, once again, another layer of tragedy for this young man who's 22 years old who has lost every single person in his family. Mother, father, four older brothers. I shouldn't say it. He has a sister that's still alive. So uh, I shouldn't say everyone in his family. He does have uh, someone still around. Uh, but the kingship of Alfred, so that's a foreshadow. Obviously, he's going to become king. Uh, prominence gained through tragedy. So after, uh, in, in January, I think it was 8th, uh, we had the Battle of Ashdown. So late January, I don't know the exact date for it, other than it was two weeks after. So I mean, we could add 14 days to it, and we could get it, but I'm not exactly sure if it was, it was mathematically that. But it's called the Battle of Basin, and... I'm just going to summarize it this way, utter humiliation. So they win this supernatural victory, and then they immediately run with their tails between their legs again. And many of us have felt that type of dynamic in our own spiritual walk, where we take a strong step forward, we feel a breakthrough, and then the, we're immediately tested in our foundation. And the key is to maintain that poise that God is beginning to build, the confidence that, no, Vikings can be defeated and to continue to move forward with that strength. But uh, this is the next step for them. And then they have the Battle of Merton, which is going to be March 871. And what's amazing about this is they're outmanned, outmatched in so many regards. Their military system is being proven to be full of fault and weakness. They do not have that which they need to be able to stand the test of the Vikings. And yet, when they band together in their shield wall, they can stand against anyone. And so they're going to win this, and I'm going to put quotes around the win, they're going to win this, this battle, and the Vikings are going to run. But the, uh, the soldiers of Wessex are so utterly exhausted that they're not going to do what they ought to do, which is to pursue uh, the Vikings. So as a result, the Vikings are going to reform their line and attack and then destroy the tired soldiers of Wessex. So it's like this victory, but it's not exercised to the degree it ought. And that's going to become a theme in a future uh, episode here of how we win our battles and how we pursue the enemy unto the end, as opposed to stopping short. So extraordinary victory that turned to travesty. Uh, Dr. Merkel is going to say, after hours of deadly diligence, the Viking line began to crumble. Just as before, after the Viking line began to break, the entire Danish horde sprinted from the battlefield, leaving the weary Saxons elated in their exhaustion. But unlike before, the Viking retreat was only temporary. The Saxon forces failing to press the retreat hard and, and drive the running soldiers into the sort of frenzied panic they had achieved at Ashdown had thought their victory was sealed and relaxed their pursuit. Let this be a lesson to all of you. 
The flood of Danes streaming from the battlefield began to slow and form again into another shield wall. And the retreat turned into a regrouping. Uh-oh. Soon the jubilation of the temporarily triumphant Saxons dissolved, and they began frantically reforming their shield wall to hold off another swelling attack. Again, the Viking crush rushed over the Saxon shield wall, and like the successive waves of an incoming tide, this second breaker came harder and stronger than before. The shield wall shivered and splintered, and the men of Wessex lost hope in one chaotic instant. Ethelred and Alfred lost all control of their men as the entire Wessex army fled madly, leaving the Viking host the proud masters of the place of slaughter. In the panicked retreat, countless Saxons were cut down. By the time the field had cleared, the ground was littered with the dead, both Viking and Saxon. Most tragically for the people of Wessex, when Alfred was finally able to find his brother in the panicked retreat, he discovered that Ethelred had been gravely wounded. Oh, oh, we had the victory. And then, oh, what's this? And Ethelred's actually going to end up dying because of this. Immediately after Easter, and this is 871, King Ethelred died. After mourning, the death of his, after mourning the death of his brother, Alfred received the crown of Wessex, and the burden of defending her fell squarely on his shoulders. Shortly after this, he received news that a fresh fleet of Viking ships had just arrived at Reading to join Halfdan. Okay, so Halfdan is one of the sons of Harry Breaches, if you remember uh, our Ragnar. So we have a difficult situation here. Not only has Alfred lost his older brother, the king, but now he is king. I know that sounds like an honor uh, to be king, but technically no one really wants to be king right now. The king is the hunted. These Vikings want to destroy the king. And so basically it's like a big bullseye, a Viking bullseye on Alfred, and he doesn't have a support system. The strongest warrior, if you remember, not his dad, but it was another Ethelwolf, the strongest warrior was defeated at the Battle of Reading and, and killed. And now Ethelred, his older brother, the, you know, the spiritual one, the strong one, saying God's going to hold us together, God's going to win this battle, he passes away. And he's left all by his lonesome. And then look at this. Shortly after this, after he receives the crown, what an honor to receive the crown, right? Shortly after this, he received news that a fresh fleet of Viking ships had just arrived at Reading to join Halfdan. Halfdan uh, is one of the kings, one of the sons of Ragnar. And I mean, I don't know how you're feeling right now, but this just doesn't look good, okay? The, everything is, is getting worse and worse, heavier and heavier. Sailing up the Thames, this fleet brought thousands of new Viking men intent on quick plunder, led by three new Viking kings, Guthrum, Ossetel, and Anwind. So Guthrum is going to actually become a very, very important character that I'm going to draw out as we move forward, because he's of uh, very strong fascination to Eric Ludi, and I think he will be to you as well. He is a very, very bad guy. And I'm not fascinated because he's very, very bad. I'm fascinated because of what's going to happen in the story of his life. It is so interesting, so fascinating that it's worth telling the tale, right? But I'm not going to go into that today. That's to keep you around for future episodes. Like, I think I'll bury it. I won't even put it in the title. It'll be one of those things where you have to listen to every episode to figure out which one's about Guthrum. Doesn't that sound like a great strategy? See, I'm a thinker. Uh, Dr. Marco continues, Word is spread of the easy wealth to be gained from looting the English countryside. Vikings who had been scattered all along the rivers of the European continent now focused their attention on the island of Britain. 
The easily gotten gold drew them from thousands of miles away, a ninth century gold rush. And guess who is the only king standing against it? Alfred. Okay, and he's all alone. So you're starting to feel sort of that tension, and that's the whole reason I had to go start with the backdrop and build this out, is to the point where you feel the hopelessness of it, the darkness of it, because that's what's so extreme about this story. That's what's so amazing about this story, is there is no possible way that Alfred can win this thing. Is there? I mean, there's no way, no way that a man could stand in the midst of this, and that's what's so exciting about this story. I don't care how dark it looks out there. I don't care how dark it gets from this point forward. We serve a God who loves to take impossible situations and turn them around. If God's people will humble themselves and they will pray and seek his face, they will turn from their wicked ways. See, God is a specialist in healing broken situations. But we have to be humble and we have to turn to him in repentant prayer. And when we do, God does miracles. That wasn't a spoiler, was it? Hopefully I didn't give anything away uh, there. So in this, we have something that I'm going to focus on, and that is in this desperate time, there is something very, very special that is going to be cultivated, and that is going to be Alfred and his intimate band uh, that is going to be built through this. And boy, does this guy need strength around him, okay? And so I'm going to parallel this with different things in the Old Testament that are identical. They're like, they're the same picture, and that is the fellowship of the beloved. So in, underneath that, it says David and his mighties. The name David is the word love in the Hebrew, which is ahava. So you stick a D sound on both ends of that, and what would you have? D-ahava-d. See? Look at that. I just, I just spoke Hebrew uh, to you. So David literally means love, or we wouldn't typically say it that way, the one who loves, or the beloved, the one who is loved, okay? So it's sort of a hard, you could say it either way, but it is interesting to recognize that that's what his name means. And so as a man, that's a strange name to have. It, you know, it just feels a little soft around the edges. Love, the one who loves, the one who is loved, it's like, ah. And yet that's a great picture of who he is. His men love him. His men are so devoted to him that they would lay down their lives for him. And that is stirring to me. When I was, you know, growing up and I, I'm, I'm this young Christian and I'm zealous for Jesus, when I would read about David and his mighty men, I wanted to be one of his mighty men. It was just like, wouldn't that be amazing to be one of David's mighty men? Now, he had 37 mighty men. And there were seven of those 37 that were in a closer group than the others. Okay, so you had the commander-in-chief, Joab, and then you had the first three, and then you had the second three. So you had this group of seven. Now, if I were to ask you, which would you rather be? Would you rather be in just the throng of his soldiers? He had hundreds of thousands of men in his armed forces. Just being one of his soldiers would be a privilege. And I'm guessing you're sort of like me. If you had a choice, you'd rather be in the 37 than in just the throng. I mean, to be one of his most mighty men, 
I mean, that, that's like, oh, that's great. And then if you could choose, it's like, okay, would you want to be in his, like the 30 ancillary ones of his, his, uh, his men, sort of like the colonels, or would you rather be one of the generals, like one of the closest of the close? Could I be one of the seven? I mean, is that an option? Is, is there an opening? I want to be one of the seven. Okay, so now there's a commander-in-chief, there's the top three, and then there's the second three. Which one do you want? I can choose? I, well, if I can choose, of course I'm going to want the top three. I, I feel a little awkward taking the commander-in-chief position, but, you know, hey, I want to be as close as close can be. And so you'll notice that Jesus has a similar pattern. When he goes, he has 12, but he's going to take three with him to most places that he goes. Peter, James, and John. And so, you know, you see Mount of Transfiguration, they're there. You see Gethsemane, they're there. He seems to go off with these three. Well, that's an intimate band. And it's a picture of something that God is inviting his people into. That intimate fellowship to share in the moments of glory, like the Mount of Transfiguration, the moments of suffering, like Gethsemane. That picture is very, very important for us to recognize. This is the same with David. This is the same with Jesus. This is the same with Alfred. A king needs his thanes. He craves his thanes. He desires those closest to him to share in not just his triumphs, but his sufferings. And there's something that we have been invited into which is very, very precious that most of us don't understand the value of it. 2 Samuel 23, 13 through 16. Then three of the 30 chief men, there's three, you see that? Went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. So the Philistines have overtaken Bethlehem, David's hometown. David is in hiding. He's in a, a, a cave system known as Adullam. Cave, the cave of Adullam, which is actually in the, the valley of Elah, which is where David's going to slay Goliath. Uh, and so th- he's in a cave system where he's going to hide out. Saul's, uh, the whole time Saul is trying to kill him, he's going to hide in this cave system. So he's in a cave, and he has a wish, a longing, a desire. And there's three that are with him in this intimate place. Is he, not everyone in all of... Uh, Judah is hanging out in this cave, but there are three that are closest to him that are going to be there, and they're going to overhear his longing whisper. And what is he going to say? Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. You see, to have the ability to overhear the longings of our king, to be like, hark, did I just hear that? I actually know what God is desiring to do, what he, what he longs for. He desires for a cup of cold water from the well of Bethlehem. What do these mighties do when they overhear the longing of their king? And I, you know, from what we can understand, David's not necessarily asking them to do something. He's just expressing a longing, but they hear it, and they respond to it. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord to show honor for them, show deference to them. I'm not going to drink something that would have cost you your life, but what meaningful connection this was, what love between men 
that is so rare for us to understand and even grip, and yet when I see it, I'm like, okay, whatever that is, circle it, want it. I want that in my life. Whatever that is, Lord Jesus, I want to be in that cave with you. Well, you do know why he's in the cave, right? He's in hiding. You do know that he's being hunted right now. You do know that there's a whole bunch of people that want him dead. And if you side with him, guess who else dies? You do. It's called the fellowship of suffering. You see, this is, it's like, Eric, are you sure you want that? Oh, well, I didn't know all that, God. Wait a minute. What, what's all this other details? I do know that. I want it. I do know what comes with it. I want to side with my king in his difficult hour. I want to be with him in that hour. There is something very, very precious about sharing the difficult hour with your king. Jesus and his mighties. Intimacy that's difficult to express. When you have John at the Last Supper who is leaning upon Jesus' chest, okay, you know, if you're a North American male, you understand that that doesn't fit into our grid, and so we're like, awkward. But this is the king of kings, and this is good. Okay, so what I'm saying is I don't understand it. I don't know how to manufacture it, okay? So if any of you are trying to get close with me and you start leaning on my chest, it might be awkward at first because we've never practiced this, okay, guys? It falls into the category of the holy kiss. Five times in Scripture we're commanded to give a holy kiss, and I've practiced it every now and then. I'll, I'll try and whip out a holy kiss. And I've given messages. You guys can, I have a message called the guy who kisses. It's a really, it's a really good message. You should listen to it. Uh, it's a little scary uh, when you uh, listen to it. And yet, and so I'll have this little stretch where I'll try and greet with a kiss. And it's usually the guys are laughing even as we do it. It's like, can you believe we're trying to do this? And then that fades after one week of church. <laughs> It, if you didn't grow up doing it, it feels foreign, okay? And that's the way this feels. This is foreign. This isn't our culture. This isn't how we relate. And yet there is something deep down inside of us that is touched by it when we see it, and we see the rightness of it. So even though we don't know exactly how to move into this territory, because all we've seen is the perversion of it, of male closeness, all we, all we have in our model is perversion. And as a result, there's no healthy model. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to lean on Jesus' chest. And how do we do that? I, I want to, Lord. I want to be in that place of intimacy with you. Uh, how do I do that? So Dr. Merkel says, the Anglo-Saxon king sat enthroned. This is so interesting. Now, don't read, read on yet, but if... If you think of a, a king enthroned, what's your mental picture? You think of some kind of castle-like structure. Like, and if, especially if you saw Lord of the Rings, you're going to think of like that building you know, where the king of Rohan uh, is going to be. And it's, there's going to be a, a throne up there. And yet it's very different uh, that we're going to see. And so let me keep reading. The Anglo-Saxon king sat enthroned, not on a gaudy gold contraption that signaled the distance between his subjects and him, but on the mead bench, pushed up to a long table, surrounded on all sides by his faithful warriors, the men who stood next to him in the shield wall throughout all of his campaigns, his thanes. Now that wasn't what we were expecting. Wait a minute, he sits enthroned? That's not a throne, a mead bench? This was not luxurious. 
This was a bench with a table, probably lesser quality than some of the things we have today. And yet there's something about this. I mean, first of all, reminds you of the Last Supper almost instantaneously. And you recognize it's like there's a king enthroned. Of course, this is when John has his head upon his chest. It's at a table. It's just sort of odd. Now, I don't picture them being on the floor like in the ancient uh, you know, Judean culture where they would sort of be, I don't know how they sat. I, Nathan could probably describe it, their legs out to the side or whatever. Uh, but this, I picture a bench, right? So sitting where your legs are uh, where we would uh, at least envision them. So it, it fits better, sits enthroned as opposed to uh, lounges enthroned. And yet on a mead bench, he comes down to the very level and the place where we are. And that's an amazing thought. There is something about the Anglo-Saxon king which is very different than the sorts of kings that we envision. The Anglo-Saxon king doesn't really have a castle. He shares in the same world that everyone else does. There isn't a distance between him and his thanes. He's with his thanes. He's in their same world. And when they go to fight in a shield wall, which I haven't taught you on the shield wall yet, but guess who's in the shield wall? The king. The king is just as vulnerable to attack. And guess what? The enemy wants to take him out more than anyone else. So he is not just as vulnerable, he's more vulnerable. But he stands shoulder to shoulder with his thanes in the shield wall. That is like startling, I think, for us to even try and comprehend that a king who leads a nation would put himself in that position because every single one of us that has a brain on our head is gonna say we lose our king and we lose our confidence. We need to preserve our king, keep our king back. And of course, that's a wisdom that is going to begin to come more and more into the, the thinking of nations where you're gonna keep your king as far away to preserve him. I mean, we have NORAD. We have a mountain where we move our president to. Could you imagine the president of the United States, imagine President Biden going onto the front lines to fight anyone, right? It's like not even in our grid, but this is how ancient leadership worked. Your leader was a warrior. Your leader was your champion. Your leader was the one that says, hold on, stand still. Stay with me, men. I mean, that's, that's extraordinary. And I don't know if you see glimpses of Christ in that, but that's what David was. That's what Jesus is. But that's one of the things that so fascinates me about this time period is it's going to draw out this ancient idea of a king being lowly with his people on a mead bench. where That's where he sits enthroned. So I gave this earlier, but just in case some of you need a refresher or some of you haven't listened to previous episodes, I, I should like hold back on this so that people are forced to listen to previous episodes. I can't believe I'm actually doing this for you, but I'm going to. The Thanes. So this is, when, I, when we use the word Thanes, it's a very, I have to admit, not a very attractive looking word, okay? Something about a G-N-S in a word, T-H-E-G-N-S, that is not an attractive word. I, 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 there's certain words that are very attractive. That's not, okay? And it, you want to say Thegans uh, as you know, an English reader, but it's, it's pronounced Thanes. And so here's the definition. The trusted ones, those closest to him that share in his kingdom strength and preserve it from all that would attempt to steal that strength. Thane is the noble's title, also Thane or Thane in Shakespearean English. The term comes from the old English bane or servant, attendant, retainer. 
In Anglo-Saxon England, it was commonly applied to aristocratic retainers of a king or, or a senior nobleman. So I'm going to give you some definitions of thane as would be used in the Anglo-Saxon idea and mindset. The thanes, the ones that share in the shield wall of their king. Now, if, if you share in the shield wall of your king, that means when the Vikings come next and Alfred calls his men to battle, that means you know that you're going to be in a shield wall, which is not like just sort of hanging out behind you, like mapping out a strategy of how you could form a shield wall. You know, you're going to be in the shield wall, which means there's a good percentage, high percentage chance you're going to die. Every single time the Vikings attack, there's a high percentage chance. Ethelred just died. Ethelwolf, remember the great warrior, not the dad, but the great warrior just died. I mean, this is within the last few months that you've had multiple of your close friends that are thanes along with you in this shield wall that have just died. And so the next time that you get called up, you are sharing in the difficulties of your king, the battles of your king, the sufferings of your king. The thanes, the ones that sit at the king's table in the meat hall. The thanes, the ones that wear the rings of the king. Remember, I was almost called this the fellowship of the rings. I mean, this is profound. I mean, everything about that like, brings up all sorts of unique feelings inside of us, those of us that have grown up with J.R.R. Tolkien, because there's a lot uh, in this that is very similar. The ones that wear the rings of the king, the things, the ones that share in the sufferings of their king. So, well, first of all, before I get to that one, I'm going to go back to this uh, slide. How many of us, this is just sort of a a summary statement for me. I want to be a thane of my king. I may not have a choice of if I'm in the vast multiple hundreds of thousands of soldiers. I don't really care where he puts me. It's not my choice. I want to be as close as he allows me to be. And if that's in the 37, I choose that. Yes, my answer is yes. if, If I could sit at the mead table with my king, I mean, imagine the privilege of being at the mead table with my king. Imagine being, having the privilege of having my king call me to battle and say, will you stand with me in the shield wall? What an, what an honor that he would trust me because when you understand what the shield wall is, it's a position of trust. It's a position of loyalty. If Every member of the shield wall, if even one person in the shield wall fails and they become a coward and they run, the whole sh- everyone's going to die in the shield wall. So as a result, it's absolute trust in the shield wall. And my king trusts me enough to say, will you stand in the shield wall with me? It would, it would be an honor of honors, O king. So the king of grace, this is something I covered before as well, talking about Alfred and how, what his training was. And I was going back throughout all of the ages of recognizing how a king disposes of their kingdom. See, we've seen a lot of bad kings over the years that claim the kingdom for themselves, that hoard the wealth, that starve the people, and yet a good king is one that is entrusted with authority, entrusted with strength, entrusted with the economy of a nation, and then shares that strength with those around him. And so that would be called the king of grace. And so, or in the Anglo-Saxon culture, they were called the ring giver. Or, and so let me explain that just at a deeper level. And this is, a, this is a screen I showed you before. 
you have land as a king, therefore you share that land with your thanes. You have wealth as a king, so you share that wealth with your thanes. You have happiness as a king, so you share that happiness with your thanes. You have spoil and victory, you share that spoil and victory with your thanes. You have power, you share that power with your thanes. So let me stop there. It's amazing to realize that Jesus has modeled this exact thing. He has gained a glory, a position, a victory, but he desires to share it with his things. It's just not the term we use in Christianity, but he desires to share it with those that would loyally give their life to him in covenant, who would enter into a bond or an oath with him and say, I'm with you, king. And he says, I'm with you. And there's a, there's a sharing, there's a covenant that takes place. And it is his delight to be a ring giver. I'll go into that in just a second. But there's another side to this. It's not just the blessing of the king or the triumph of the king that he wants to share. It's also the difficulties of the king, the sorrows of the king, the challenges of the king that he wants to share with his things. And so you have need, share that need with your things. You have enemies, share those enemies with your things. You have a battle, share that battle with your things. So the king's table in the mead hall. It, it's a little strange, I have to admit, all of us you know, conservative Christians, and now we're ed- heading into a mead hall, and it's sort of like, is it appropriate for us to go in there? Uh, and it's a little you know, awkward. They didn't really have the typical uh, clean water uh, that we have on the island of Britain. It was, there's a lot of alcohol flowing, I'm just going to be honest with you, and it was totally normal <laughs> in the history of this nation that you grow up on things like mead, uh, and it's like a, sort of a honey liqueur. I don't know how well, even to describe it. I've never had it, to be honest with you, but from the descriptions. So the king's table in the mead hall. Dr. Merkel says, this table was piled high with fruits and vegetables from the farms of Wessex and laden with the flesh of roasted boar, venison, and beef. An enormous horn was passed around the table. The horn was gilded, crusted with gems, and overflowing with mead, the sweet intoxicating honey wine of the Anglo-Saxon warriors. An enormous fire in the center of the spacious room warmed the raucous crowd late into the evening. The singing shop in the mead hall. So the shope in the ancient uh, Anglo-Saxon world was the poet. And the poet was a very, very important role. It was sort of like the minstrel uh, in the, the culture where they would tell the tales. And so you would remember history. So Alfred grew up uh, with his father being the king, coming in and hearing the shope sing of the valiant uh, behavior of all. I mean, they go back generations and generations to tell ancient stories to build, but they don't just share about the, the, the good guys, they share about the bad guys. So they're constantly sort of dividing out good from evil and showing righteous behavior and the behavior of a thane, the behavior of a king, the kings that went before them that were good, the kings that went before them that were, that were bad. And it was constantly creating almost like a conscience within the king and the thanes of how righteous behavior uh, works. So Dr. Merkel says, throughout the evening, the band of men occasionally would grow silent 
when the thrumming of the lyre began and the poet bard, the shope, began his singing. The song of the shope hovered somewhere between a haunting melody and a rhythmic chant, with its steady meter strummed out on the lyre. The words of the shope brought back to life the legends of old at the same time that they immortalized the names of the men sitting in the hall. They told of the glory of battles fought bravely, whether won or lost. They spoke of the nobility of loyal thanes who stood resolutely by their lord no matter the cost. They spoke of the treachery of men who had eaten at the lord's table, taken his gifts, but then become unmanned at the sight of the enemy shield wall and filled with cowardice, turned their backs on their lord and ran from battle. They listed the names of the heroes and the cowards. The ring giver in the mead hall. Dr. Merkel continues, when the songs were finished, the king would give out gifts to his thanes. Generously, the gift giver would open up his treasure hoard and pour out his wealth to his loyal men. He gave gracious gifts of land with estates to noblemen. He gave farms and the profit that came with them. He gave horses, sacks of gold and silver coins, shields, helmets, swords, axes, necklaces, bracelets, and rings. This last category, the category of rings, came to epitomize the gifts of a gracious king. All Anglo-Saxon lords became known as ring givers. In return for these generous gifts, the men of the Mead Hall would pledge their complete devotion back to the ring giver. If the king ever found himself in need of an army to face down an enemy, he would find that his gift giving had not been in vain. His loyal thanes would rise up and stand unflinching in the shield wall to live or die with their ring giver. It's interesting because, you know, I have a ring on my finger. And a ring, as you've, many of you have heard in, in covenant ceremonies of marriage, is a band, it's a circle, so it's eternal. It doesn't have an end. So the commitment that goes with it is like the circle itself. It doesn't have an end. And so it's interesting that this time period, you're going to see it, which is almost, the, the idea is like a covenant. It, they called it an oath. And it is binding in its forever. It's for life. And what you're basically saying, because these things are not just committing to Alfred, but to Alfred's sons and his sons after that. In other words, you're bonding together to say, my life for yours, but the king is also saying, my life for yours. And so the king is going to protect the descendants of his thanes just as much as the thanes are going to protect the descendants of the king. And this is a bond at a very, very deep, deep level. And it's symbolized through a ring. Alfred and his thanes. Dr. Merkel says, years later when Alfred had the leisure to write, he described feasting in the mead hall and the warm fellowship between the ring giver and his thanes, the deep bond of comitatus, which I'll describe in just a, se a second, as the closest, uh, closest approximation he could make to life in heaven. This was life in the court of a king as it should be. Whenever something went wrong in Anglo-Saxon society, it was inevitably revealed as a failure to honor the most basic obligations pledged in the ring giver's mead hall. So when something's going wrong, it's because something isn't being honored from the mead hall. It's like we had an agreement. Hey, remember we covenanted together, you were gonna stand with me, whether by life or by death. And when you don't honor that covenant, you could say the same thing about a marriage. When something's going wrong in a marriage, it's usually because someone's not honoring the most basic obligations pledged in the wedding ceremony. 
There's a reason why we exchange vows. There's a reason why we commit one to the other, and it's not based on ease. It's not based on if things go well and if there's a lot of money or if someone's always healthy. It's whether there's healthy or not healthy. It's whether there's money or there's not money. It's not based on the pleasure of the situation. It's based on the commitment of it. There is something that transcends all of the ups and downs of life, and that is that covenantal bond or that oath. Comitatus. It's a, this is what it means. So when you hear this word, this is a, just a really fascinating word. I want to do something with the word. I just don't know what to do with it yet. Comitatus, a band of men bonded by oath with their king to live and die together. Okay, that's good. Uh, that's really good. Uh, I want some of that. I want some comitatus. You see, that's what I want to have with my king. I want to have that. And you see this calm, like communion, community, uh, this, this coming together uh, that is there, uh, in the, baked into the word. I haven't done an etymology study on it, but uh, I like it. It's, it's, a, it's a really cool word, cool concept. In the Old Testament, we're going to see this vividly demonstrated, okay? Not just with David and his men, but with David and Jonathan. And so it's interesting because with David and Jonathan, you have the rightful king, and then you have Jonathan who is heir to be king, but Jonathan needs to give up his kingship, and he needs to come along and serve David's kingship, even to his own harm, potentially. So David and Jonathan, a picture of manly fellowship that showcases this level of intimacy between warrior men that is hallowed and rare. I think it's hard for us to know how to properly describe the David-Jonathan fellowship that they shared because it's deep, it's profound, its descriptions are even awkward for us, I think, in North American uh, modern manhood. We don't quite know what to do with it, uh, but it's very, very precious and sacred. 1 Samuel 18, 3, and then chapter 20, verse 17. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant. See, there's a ring giving right there. There's a Mead Hall transaction. It's a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Now, Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So it's a deep fellowship. It's a deep affection, one for the other. And this affection as it's oftentimes said in, in the history of covenant, that there is usually an outward symbol. And so oftentimes a blood covenant or a blood brother, if you've ever heard those terms, they would slit uh, some part of their wrist and cr- to create a scar, and they would oftentimes intermingle blood, sort of like, my life is yours, your life is mine, type of statement. And then if, say someone, say I was in blood covenant with someone, and they were to, some bad guy was going to attack me. You know, all I would need to do is stick up my wrist, and what would that tell them? Woo, Eric's in covenant with someone. That means if they harm me, there's someone else who's going to harm them. So are you sure you want to mess with Eric? Because I'm, I'm in covenant with someone. And that's just such a weird thought to us. We don't even get that. Covenant is such a weird thing to us. Even when it comes to marriage, we don't even know to call it a covenant anymore. All we understand is contract, which is based on the performance of two parties. If one party fails, the other party's free to get out. And we don't understand covenant, which is binding. And it doesn't just loosen like a shoelace. Uh, It is something that is firm, uh, like iron uh, welded uh, together. 
Mephibosheth, great name, guys. Uh, but this is the, uh, one of the sons of Jonathan who is going to end up lame because he's going to be dropped. He's just a, a little a child uh, when David and, uh, Saul, David and Jonathan are going to die. David and Jonathan. Saul and Jonathan are going to die in battle. Mephibosheth is going to be carried by one of the nurses and fall, and he's going to be lame. And yet, as a statement of remembering Jonathan and remembering the covenant that he has with Jonathan, David is going to care for Mephibosheth. And it's a beautiful story, which I'm not going to go into, but uh, 2 Samuel 9, 11, as for Mephibosheth, says the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. And so what you see is this bond of the king and his thanes, or the bond of covenant, the bond of the oath, transcends generation. And you're going to see this with God. You see, this isn't just David. This is actually the behavior of God with us. Because you're going to see his covenant with David, and you're going to see it transcend the generations, even though there's some really naughty behavior uh, unfolding. So uh, God's remembrance of David. So this is six generations after David. When we go through the message uh, in the training of the lineage of majesty, we'll go through this in a lot more depth. But we have a guy named Jehoram that shows up on the scenes, and he's just bad, okay? He's just a bad dude. And he's in the descendancy of David. He's the king of Judah, but he's a bad guy. And listen to what it says here. Second Chronicles 21.7, the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. That was a long time ago. I mean, this is six generations after David. God is still honoring a covenant that he had with David, with, with his thane. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Of course, that's ultimately going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so what we see, though, is this same fellowship, this same covenantal bond that goes deep. It's not a flimsy sort of arrangement. So one of, one of my favorite stories in, uh, in Christian history, which I'm not going to go into at great level, I'll just give a head nod to it. Peter, one of the thanes of Christ, one of his three that is going to share in the Mount of Transfiguration, that glory, is also going to share in the Garden of Gethsemane. And some of you could say, and not very well, uh, he's going to cut off Malchus's ear. But you know what? He's there. He's there. He's there with him. And though he's going to function very imperfectly, which is an encouragement to probably all of us, he is one of Jesus' thanes. And this man is going to be so deeply bonded that, it, you know, if you remember uh, banquet night here at Ellers, I give the Latin phrase desiderio domini, which is a phrase associated with Peter, which means I dearly long to be with my Lord. And he would cry even after the ascension of Christ. He longed so much to be with his king. And so when it comes to the end of Peter, and Peter is uh, being hauled off and he's going to be crucified, he requests, get this guys, this is even hard to comprehend and swallow. He requests that he not diminish the cross of Christ because he is unworthy to die in the same form as Christ. So he ends up with a more painful version of death. He dies upside down on a cross as a way of honoring his king and his king's cross. I mean, that, who chooses a more painful death to honor their king. That's pretty special. And that's the love between the king and his thanes, the thanes and their king. You see, what we've entered into is a long history of deep affection. 
In fact, one of the symbols of the church of Jesus Christ is that holy kiss. And actually what it is, it's a, uh, it's a phileo. Uh, it's a deep affection of love. The word Philadelphia, or Philadelphia is how we say it in America, but in the Greek, Philadelphia is a deep affection of, you know, family affection that you share with one another. And we have that as the church, or at least maybe I should say we should have that within the church. We have been stunted a lot in our cultivation of this sort of intimacy. We don't even, it's, it's foreign to us. It's like a different language to us. We're not used to it. You know, the Italian families, they have it, okay? They, they just sort of have something where they kiss each other on the cheek and they go, mama mia, you know, and they have these things going. They just seem better at it, right? Uh, and, but some of us in the American culture are very stiff and we lack that softness in our bearing. Our, our, our personal space is about seven feet, you know, and you can't get very close to us before we start feeling awkward and encroached upon. And as a result, we've lost something, and I'm going to say spiritually, because the, the main issue isn't just that we are huggy and kissy in the church of Jesus Christ. That's not necessarily my proposal today that we just start practicing that. It's that we start cultivating that in our relationship with Christ, that we become more vulnerable and we're willing to sit at that mead table with Jesus and we're willing to even say, Jesus, I, I'm going to lean on, on you. And I know I've never done this before, but this is something I really want to cultivate. And I guarantee you he's not going to push you away. He's not going to say, awkward. Great. What? No, 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 no. We don't do that in the kingdom of heaven. No, no. This is his delight. Lean your head right here. He's strong. You may be strong. You may be a man, and this is like, this is like a very strange uh, statement, you know, but lean. Lean against him. This, is, this heart is where he wants you. He wants you to hear it beat. He wants you to hear its intimate longings. He wants you to share in the cave. He wants you to know when he's thirsty. He wants you to know when he is delighted. He wants you to know when he aches for someone's lost soul. He wants you to know what is going on inside of him so that it can go on inside of you. The invitation to the cave, it's very personal. So I'm not going to go through, I'm saying this over and over, I'm not going to go through much, right? Because this could be a huge message if I unfurled it to its full level. But one of my favorite things is the cave of Adullam. And I'm very fascinated with the cave of Adullam. And because, you know, you have a rock for a pillow, but you're with your king. You are like in hiding, but you're with your king. And if you knew that you had an invitation today to come away and to meet your king in the cave and to be one of his mighties, to share in his battle. So Saul is hunting him currently. And yet you, and so when you side with David, you side against Saul. That means you're one of Saul's enemies the, moments you choose, the moment you choose David. And yet to be where your king is, and I've oftentimes said this, that I want to be where Jesus is. If he's in a cave and I have a rock for a pillow, so be it. I want to be where Jesus is. I want to share in Jesus' victories, but I also want to share in his season of persecution. David's going through a season of persecution. And you know, that those that share in that season of persecution are also going to share in the glories of his coming kingdom. I want to share in all that Jesus has. 
not just the joys of his coming kingdom, but I want to share in the, joy, in, the, in the sufferings and the challenges of this season of persecution. I want to stand. I want to stick my name next to his. I'm with him. I want to be a thane. I want to be a loyal thane in the shield wall. I want to stand with him. I want to consider it the highest privilege to hold this position. So my invitation to all of us as we go through this is, yeah, I know we're not old Anglo-Saxon in the way we think, in the way we reason. However, I want us to go back to be like Jesus made us to be. He didn't make us to be Anglo-Saxon. He made us to be just what we are, but that is dependent. That is to be loyal. That is to be loving and affectionate towards our king, towards our ruler. He made us that way. So let's set aside our entrapments of North Americanism and let's allow a tenderness to be cultivated, a softness. And like I said, just lean, lean in today and stick your head on his chest and try it out. And I think you're going to find uh, that a whole new dimension of your walk with your king will open up. Father, we want to understand this in a greater degree. I pray that you would instruct us in what it means to be as John at that supper table. What it means to be a thane at the mead table. Lord, what it means to be as Jonathan unto David. What it means to be as one of the three mighties rushing to get a cup of cool water from the well. What it means to be one of the disciples in Gethsemane when you say, watch with me. Lord, how does this work? Cultivate an understanding in us. We hunger for it. We desire it at a greater level. We want to have fellowship with our King. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.